When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. My grandparents on my mother's side came from Slovenia after the Second World War uh, to settle in America, and they settled in Cleveland, in the middle of the city, and one of the things that seemed to recapture their, uh, the rural life that I sensed that they did have back in Slovenia was that they bought a small farm not really an actual farm, but everyone in our family called it the farm. Uh, They bought a small house out in the country, about uh, 40 or 50 miles outside of Cleveland, just east. And when I got old enough, uh, just in high school and uh, towards the end of high school, one of my most vivid memories is going to the farm and cutting the grass there just around the house. There wasn't much grass to cut. It wasn't a large piece of land, but it was always just an annoyance because we had to bring the lawnmower from our house, which was a pain, or we had to try and use the one that was still at the house, which usually never worked. But the most vivid parts of those trips with the lawnmower was when I uh, found no trouble at all making myself take a break. And what I would do was sit in the car, an old Subaru that I had actually inherited from the grandfather who owned the farm, and I would uh, sit in the driver's seat with the driver's side door open, and I would read from the old Schocken publication edition of Kafka's The Trial and Kafka's uh, the castle. And these were the earliest translations of Kafka into English by Willa and Edwin Muir. And it just so happens that one of the most uh, astonishing experiences of my life after getting married and having a child was, uh, happened to be taking a trip for about a week, uh, to the islands of Orkney off the Scottish coast. And it was uh, quite a moment to land on these, uh, land on uh, the mainland to uh, take a bus into the downtown of uh, the main city there called Kirkwall and to immediately go to the bookstore. And the book that I bought there and the book that I still have is the selected poems of Edwin Muir uh, because Muir himself 
came from Orkney, and I don't know much about his biography, but he left the island, uh, I assume, uh, in his adulthood, uh, and appears to have traveled all around Europe and was a translator with his wife as well as a poet. So these, these early books of Kafka have really stayed with me for a whole multitude of reasons. Uh, even among them I can add now is that uh, my grandparents came from Slovenia and Kafka himself was uh, spent his life in Prague and there feels like a kinship between the two, uh, at least geographically. And ever since my conversion to Judaism, I have felt even closer to a writer like Kafka, even though before then I, I felt immensely close to him already. So there, there are all these things bound up with uh, how uh, we experience the writers that mean the most to us over the course of our lives. And it seemed appropriate somehow uh, before our big election day in America to read two of the most astonishing passages from Kafka's trial um, as a, I don't know, perhaps as a comment on politics or society, I don't know. but. Uh, I guess in one way it could you could see it as being that what our politicians and what our media and what our social media does uh, on a daily basis is uh, confound and mystify us and confuse us and just abuse language constantly and what Kafka seems to offer us is confounding, mysterious and puzzling but it is all for an immensely higher purpose of understanding bureaucracy, of understanding loneliness, uh, so many things. And many readers will know that the trial begins with the line, someone must have slandered Joseph K. for one morning without having done anything wrong, he was arrested. And it's become quite fashionable in the almost century that, uh, since Kafka died and since he lived mostly unknown uh, and unpublished during his lifetime, mostly unpublished during his lifetime. It's become fashionable to sort of make a mystic out of Kafka and I remember reading an essay a few years ago where uh, this idea was sort of mocked that, that Kafka was uh, not a mystic, he was not a, a prophet of the 20th century, he wasn't any of these things. And I can understand that. I probably lean more toward the mystic part than anything else, but I can understand overdoing that. Um, but I can also understand overdoing the merely literary, the merely theoretical, uh, the merely academic study of Kafka, because um, if I can save save someone like Kafka from anything, I would uh, save him from the college classroom, or at least only, I would, I would save him at least from only being experienced in the college classroom, because he is so immensely human and so immensely sympathetic, not just in these unfinished novels, but in his diaries, and in uh, the uh, 
amazing uh, three-volume biography that's been published by him recently. Uh, I believe the author's name is Reiner Stack, and uh, I had the pleasure of interviewing the English translator of those biographies last year, and it's uh, it, it's like reading nothing else. It's not like reading a standard literary biography or a standard historical biography. It is like touching a human being. Um, and so I just wanted to read two passages from the trial. And both of these come from, not from Edwin Muir's older translations, but from the more recent translations also published by Schocken, uh, by Brian Mitchell. And see here. Uh, the first of them is, is uh, only, a, only a page or two in, in the trial, but it has been published separately on its own. It's known as Kafka's Fable, called Before the Law. And I just wanted to mention that in the, uh, in the earlier edition that I read those summer days while trying to avoid cutting my grandparents' grass, um, the introduction to the trial was written by uh, uh, a man named George Steiner, and I have never forgotten what he said about this fable before the law in that introduction, and this is what George Steiner says. Uh, the knowledge that this was written and published separately from the novel during Kafka's lifetime by a gentleman in a bowler hat going to and from his daily insurance business defies my grasp. My impotence is not an isolated one. Formerly, nothing has been added to the sacred scriptures of the Jewish canon, but this parable in the dark of the Prague Minster has, in fact, been read and commented upon within liturgical contexts. It is, it, it is taking on the primal force of an imponderable verity. And if you don't believe George Steiner, let's just read the fable. This is what it says. Before the law stands a doorkeeper. A man from the country comes to this doorkeeper and requests admittance to the law, but the doorkeeper says that he can't grant admittance now. The man thinks it over and then asks if he'll be allowed to enter later. It's possible, says the doorkeeper, but not now. Since the gate to the law stands open as always, and the doorkeeper steps aside, the man bends down to look through the gate into the interior. When the doorkeeper sees this, he laughs and says, If you're so drawn to it, go ahead and try to enter, even though I've forbidden it. But bear this in mind, I'm powerful, and I'm only the lowest doorkeeper. From hall to hall, however, stand doorkeepers each more powerful than the one before. The mere sight of the third is more than even I can bear. The man from the country has not anticipated such difficulties. The law should be accessible to anyone, at any time, he thinks, 
But as he now examines the doorkeeper in his fur coat more closely, his large, sharply pointed nose, his long, thin, black, tartar's beard, he decides he would prefer to wait until he receives permission to enter. The doorkeeper keeps giving him a stool and lets him sit down at the side of the door. He sits there for days and years. He asks time and again to be admitted and wearies the doorkeeper with his entreaties. The doorkeeper often conducts brief interrogations, inquiring about his home and many other matters, but he asks such questions indifferently, as great men do, and in the end he always tells himself he still can't admit him. The man, who has equipped himself well for his journey, uses everything he has, no matter how valuable, to bribe the doorkeeper. The doorkeeper accepts everything, but as he does so he says, I'm taking this just so you won't think you've neglected something. Over the many years, the man observes the doorkeeper almost incessantly. He forgets the other doorkeepers, and this first one seems to him the only obstacle to his admittance to the law. He curses his unhappy fate, loudly during the first years, later, as he grows older, merely grumbling to himself. He turns childish, and since he has come to know even the fleas in the doorkeeper's collar over his years of study, he asks the fleas, too, to help him change the doorkeeper's mind. Finally, his eyes grow dim, and he no longer knows whether it's really getting darker around him, or if his eyes are merely deceiving him. And yet in the darkness, he now sees a radiance that streams forth inextinguishably from the door of the law. He doesn't have much longer to live now. Before he dies, everything he has experienced over the years coalesces in his mind into a single question he has never asked the doorkeeper. He motions to him, since he can no longer straighten his stiffening body. The doorkeeper has to bend down to him, for the difference in size between them has altered greatly to the man's disadvantage. What do you want to know now? asks the doorkeeper. You're insatiable. Everyone strives to reach the law, says the man. How does it happen, then, that in all these years no one but me has requested admittance? The doorkeeper sees that the man is nearing his end, and in order to reach his failing hearing, he roars at him, No one else could gain admittance here, because this entrance was meant solely for you. I'm going to go and shut it now. Let me get a drink here. So you can imagine that that passage had a little more pull than cutting my grandparents' grass. Um, and the next section comes from the very end of the trial, or what would have been the end of the trial. Uh, as is well known, uh, Kafka never finished one of his novels, and but they were published in the fragments that were left uh, after he died. And uh, this is what I wrote uh, previously about this passage. Joseph K. is arrested for no reason at the beginning of the Kafka's The Trial, and at its conclusion he is put to death for no reason as well. 
Kafka, who worked by day as a lawyer at a Prague insurance company, was well able to illustrate not just the absurdity and inscrutability of bureaucracy, but also its deep cruelty and impersonality. Executed in some anonymous setting of urban decay, Joseph K.'s death seems a haunting premonition of all politically and socially motivated executions and shamings that we have seen since. And there's that sense uh, where I still do, even in a small way, fall down on the side of seeing him as being sort of a prophet, whether of uh, secret trials uh, by any governments you can imagine to just being shamed on social media nowadays. And this is the scene of Joseph K.'s death. They were thus soon out of the city, which in this direction bordered on open fields with almost no transition. A small stone quarry, abandoned and desolate, lay beside a building which was still quite urban. Here the men halted, either because this spot had been their goal from the beginning, or because they were too tired to go any farther. Now they released Kay, who waited silently as they removed their top hats and wiped the perspiration from their foreheads with their handkerchiefs while they looked about the quarry. Moonlight lay everywhere with the naturalness and serenity no other light is granted. After a brief, polite exchange about who was responsible for the first of the tasks to come, the men seemed to have received their assignment without any specific division of labor. One of them went to Kay and removed his jacket, his vest, and finally his shirt. Kay shivered involuntarily, whereupon the man gave him a gentle, reassuring pat on the back. Then he folded the clothes carefully, as if they would be needed again, though not in the immediate future. In order not to leave Kay standing motionless, exposed to the rather chilly night air, he took him by the arm and walked back and forth with him a little, while the other man searched for some suitable spot in the quarry. When he had found it, he waved, and the other gentleman led Kay over to it. It was near the quarry wall, where a loose block of stone was lying. The men sat Kay down on the ground, propped him against the stone, and laid his head down on it. In spite of their efforts and in spite of the cooperation Kay gave them, his posture was still quite forced and implausible. So one of the men asked the other to let him work on positioning Kay on his own for a while, but that didn't improve things either. Finally, they left Kay in a position that wasn't even the best of those they had already tried. Then one man opened his frock coat and, from a sheath on a belt, that encircled his vest, drew forth a long, thin, double-edged butcher knife, held it up, and tested its sharpness in the light. Once more the nauseating courtesies began. The One of them passed the knife across K to the other, who passed it back over K. K knew clearly now that it was his duty to seize the knife as it floated from hand to hand above him and plunge it into himself. But he didn't do so, 
Instead, he twisted his still free neck and looked about him. He could not rise entirely to the occasion. He could not relieve the authorities of all their work. The responsibility for this final failure lay with whomever had denied him the remnant of strength necessary to do so. His gaze fell upon the top story of the building adjoining the quarry. Like a light flicking on, the casements of a window flew open. A human figure, faint and insubstantial at that distance and height, leaned far out abruptly and stretched both arms out further. Who was it? A friend? A good person? Someone who cared? Someone who wanted to help? Was it just one person? Was it everyone? Was there still help? Were there objections that had been forgotten? Of course there were. Logic is no doubt unshakable, but it can't withstand a person who wants to live. Where was the judge he'd never seen? Where was the high court he'd never reached? He raised his hands and spread out all his fingers. But the hands of one man were right at Kay's throat, while the other thrust the knife into his heart and turned it there twice. With failing sight, Kay saw how the men drew near his face, leaning cheek to cheek to observe the verdict. Like a dog, he said. It seemed as though the shame was to outlive him. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.